Hello, and welcome to my podcast. This is The Mongols, Chinese Emperors. Episode 4, Origin of the Universe. For those of you that have been listening, the last episode I talked in some detail about the life of Kublai Khan. We learned about the preparations he oversaw that were necessary for the Mongols to conquer Sung China. And finally, we talked about the fall of the Sung dynasty. So in this episode, I want to begin with the new Chinese dynasty, the Yuan dynasty, which, of course, is part of the larger Mongolian Empire. We'll get into all of that. China is finally unified, and Kublai Khan tries to solidify his Khanate and the new Chinese dynasty. To better understand Kublai Khan and his reign as a Chinese emperor, it is important to realize the uniqueness of his situation. The Chinese dynasty he created, and I'll get into that dynasty shortly, was just one part of the greater Mongol Empire that at least nominally he was the Khan. Nominally, because, as I have mentioned before, after his brother Monkey's death, the Mongol Empire had split into regional rivalries. Technically, the Mongol Empire was intact with one Khan, but in effect, that was not the case. Kublai wanted badly to be thought of more than just a Mongolian great Khan or a Chinese emperor. A major theme of his reign from this point forward and for the remainder of his life was him finding the right balance between a Mongolian Khan and a Chinese emperor. He always had trouble convincing the Mongols and the other Khans into accepting his authority. He desperately sought universal rule as the Grand Khan of the Mongols. But only one other Khan of another Khanate accepted Kublai as a universal ruler, and he was his brother Hulagu, who controlled the Persian Khanate. Kublai also sought support and acceptance as a Chinese emperor. To do that, he would have to install traditional Chinese values and cultural rituals over Mongolian ones. But he could not, of course, abandon altogether 
his Mongolian values, even in China, as the emperor. Kublai Khan, emperor of China too, would have to walk a very fine line. One of the clearest statements he could make to signal his Chinese bona fides was he moved the Mongol capital from Karakoram, Mongolia, to Beijing, China, in the year 1266. The Mongols called Beijing Daidu. It had been the capital of the Jin and Liao dynasties before. Kublai also extended the Grand Canal to reach the Beijing capital. Not only did he extend it, he improved it, renovated it. About 130 miles was the extension. And in so doing, he employed up to 3 million people. If you want to know more about the Grand Canal, I suggest my episode 6 Qing Dynasty podcast that you will find in the same location of this podcast. Kublai built the Forbidden City in Beijing, or at least the first version of it. He even held court there for official business as early as the year 1274. And another effort to ingratiate himself with the Chinese was in the area of religion. While he personally continued to observe traditional Mongolian shamanistic practices, he fostered good relations with Confucians and supported their beliefs and practices. And in the year 1271, in another ingratiating gesture, he chose the name of the dynasty. The name he chose was Da Yuan, which in Mandarin means origin of the universe or primal force. Yuan in Mandarin implies epic, big, an epic, big beginning. Think Adam and Eve, biblical epic. Kublai made sure that his second son, Zhenjin, born from his favorite wife, received a classic and excellent Chinese education. Kublai wanted to portray himself as a patron of Chinese culture and arts. He feared being perceived as a crude, marauding barbarian. Kublai expectantly declared that he had the mandate of heaven, which, of course, is a completely Chinese ethos. His Chinese emperor name is Shizu. And just like other Chinese dynasties, the emperors had many names, their personal name, their official name, and their posthumous name. With respect to Kublai, 
He had to portray himself as the great Khan of the Mongol Empire and ruler of non-Chinese domains under Mongolian control. As I said a moment ago, a very fine line. By maintaining his control and relations with his non-Chinese domains gave him more legitimacy to proclaim he was the one and only universal ruler. By the year 1279, however, financial problems surfaced, particularly in China. And it was simply a case that there was more money being spent than being taken in. Also compounding the problem in China was Kublai's inability to fully integrate the Sung Chinese into his realm. They would forever resent him. The regions and sea trade the former Song had controlled could never be fully harvested, and it deprived his dynasty of its vast wealth. Too many Song Chinese were hostile to the Mongol leaders. Another problem he had was that in the year 1289, he significantly lengthened the Grand Canal that I just mentioned, but the expense, of course, was enormous. And toward the latter years of his reign, the characteristic balance between Mongolian identity and Chinese identity he had successfully maintained during much of his reign seemed to disappear. Part of this deterioration can be explained by his age and health at that time. By the year 1280, Kublai was in his mid-60s and was known to suffer from gout and other maladies. The fiscal problems seemed to rattle him and caused many Chinese to lose confidence in him. And again, he was constantly driven to be both emperor and great Khan, the universal ruler. And one practical manifestation of that drive was to conquest and expand your empire. Kublai's expeditions to Japan are illustrious in showing his almost desperate pursuit of legitimacy. He had unsuccessfully tried a military expedition to Japan in the year 1274. Since the 1260s, Kublai had sent envoys to Japan trying to bring Japan into the Mongolian Empire. The 1274 invasion involved a diverse invasion force of Mongols, Chinese, and Koreans. It was an 800-ship armada manned primarily by Koreans. The invasion force was around 20,000, and they struck at Haikata-ku, part of Fukuoka, one of Japan's oldest developed regions and nearest to the Korean Peninsula. However, in November of the year 1274, a typhoon hit the area where they were, and nearly two-thirds of the invasion force died. Kublai, after that, focused on conquering the Sung. But, in the year 1280, he tried to invade Japan again. This time, he sent an army of 40,000 from northern China 
and another 100,000 from southern China and about 900 Korean ships, a massive invasion force. It seemed Kublai had learned from the first unsuccessful invasion six years earlier. Or had he? Kublai hired a Korean admiral and a Chinese general to lead the invasion. And the invasion force consisted of both Mongols and Chinese, including about 15,000 Korean sailors. By that time, Korea had already become a Mongol vassal state. And if I may digress just a bit, I have to ask my listener, does Korea seem like the Belgium of Asia? I mean, consider the prime geographic location both Belgium and Korea occupied and the importance those locations had with neighboring nations. Just a thought. Sorry for the digression. Anyway, Back to the history. Kublai had assembled a massive invasion force. It also seemed he had a good attack plan. It would be a two-pronged attack, one force originating from China, the China mainland, and the other force originating from Korea. They would approach Japan at the southernmost island, Kushu, which is the third largest of Japan's main islands. The invasion force, however, was plagued with problems from the beginning. One of the invasion forces was delayed, so the entire invasion force lost its momentum. After two months of fighting in Japan, they were at a standstill. Then, in August of the year 1280, history repeated itself. Now, anyone with any knowledge of Japan knows that from August through November of every year, typhoons are a usual occurrence. And the typhoon that struck the island where the invasion occurred, and it is estimated 65,000 of the invasion force drowned. The Japanese believed the gods had intervened for Japan again and protected it. It was a divine wind, they called it. The Japanese have a word for it, kamikaze. And that defeated the Mongolian invasion. Kublai actually planned a third invasion for the mid-1280s. But that time, the Chinese and Koreans refused to cooperate. And so, he forever abandoned the idea. The failure to take Japan the second time was a shock. The defeat was a dent in the Mongols' aura of invincibility. Part of the problem was, the Mongolian troops were outnumbered by the Chinese, and they did not get along. Secondly, The the landing site in Japan was a strategically bad site because it was unprotected from counterattack and the elements. The edge the Mongols always had was terror, and the Japan failure destroyed that. Perhaps the worst damage was it ruined the finances of the empire. 
again, all of this loss because of the need to prove Mongolian legitimacy. Kublai also sent military expeditions in the 1270s and 80s to Southeast Asia, Java, and Burma for tribute or invasion and conquer. He only had mixed success, however, with these expeditions. Late in his reign, there were rebellions in the west and in the northeast regions of China. He himself led the mission to Manchuria to put down the rebellion there. He managed to defeat both rebellions. Perhaps the greatest loss to him, though, was the death of his favorite wife and his son. His favorite wife, Chalu, died in the year 1281. He had many years before named their son, Jinjin, as crown prince. But in the year 1285, four years later, that son died. The deaths caused Kublai to fall into deep, into deep depression. He compensated by drinking and eating too much. He grew obese. His gout got worse, along with other medical issues. And in the year 1294, Kublai died. He was 80 years of age. Kublai was succeeded by his grandson, Temer, the son of his son, Jenjin. But more on him, the next episode. Kublai's body was brought back to Mongolia, to the mountainous regions of the northeast where his grandfather, Genghis Khan, had been buried. The exact location was never disclosed, and the tombs are lost to the ages. Kublai's legacy, let's talk about it a little. He unified China for the first time in nearly four centuries. And I see it as ironic that it was a non-Chinese foreigner to unify China once again. Aside from Kublai's mixed results in his foreign campaigns, particularly those late in his life, his reign deserves recognition and credit. Like the Mongolian Khans before him, he successfully conducted military campaigns and territorial expansion. His biggest accomplishment, of course, was Sung China. And remember, when Kublai started the the Sung invasion, he was vastly outnumbered. It was as big of a logistical, military, and political reward and win as any other previous Mongol campaign. So he deserves full credit for the Sung campaign. While the vision to conquest Sung China was not originally his, he completed it. While he did not begin the assault into Sung China, he ended it. And it cannot be forgotten that in those times before he was the Khan or the Emperor, 
he was of great assistance to his brother Monkey in helping the conquest at the earliest planning stages. He is also remembered for the lengthening and the improvement of the Grand Canal. And he also built and rebuilt vital infrastructure in China, such as roads and bridges. Kublai's adept balancing early in his reign between Mongolian and Chinese interests deserves proper recognition as well. It shows, at the very least, his intelligence, sensitivity, and patience. All of these great traits of a leader, whatever faults he may have had as well. He also deserves credit for positioning the civil state, both in the Mongolian Empire and in China, and left him in good condition. He left a largely stable and prosperous entity. I do get the impression, however, that Kublai's legacy with non-Chinese Mongolians was not as good as his legacy with Chinese with the Chinese. The end result, though, of Kublai's reign was a Pax Mongolia. The famous Venetian explorer Marco Polo spent about 15 years in China during Kublai's reign. He even served for a time as a sort of Mongolian ambassador for Kublai. On Marco Polo's return to Europe, he penned his famous book, The Travels of Marco Polo, in the year 1294. In the book, he provides rich descriptions of Kublai Khan and some of the events Kublai faced during his reign. Genghis Khan may have the legacy of the consummate Mongol, fearsome and a great military leader, but his grandson, Kublai's legacy, is the one who enjoyed the full rewards of the Pax Mongolia. In the next episode, Kublai's failure to clearly delineate his successor after his son Genjin's death caused the Mongol Empire a lot of trouble. Kublai's grandson, Temur, eventually succeeded Kublai as the second Yuan emperor and the sixth great Khan of the Mongol Empire. We will learn about Temur's reign and his death. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. <laughs>